You're listening to a chapel service recorded at Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. For more information, visit asburyseminary.edu. Thank you very much, and for thank you for the warmth of your welcome and encouragement throughout my time here. It's marvelous to come to a place where I just feel so very quickly at home, and it is by no means all theological schools, and by no means is an Anglican or Methodist establishments where one might instantly feel that, and I feel it here, so thank you. Um, what I have to do now is inevitably brief and sketchy compared with what one should do at this point in the argument, because at this point in the argument that we've had the last day, I ought to say, right, we will now take um, hours and hours and hours to look at the Pauline evidence the rest of the New Testament, and particularly the Gospels, inch by inch through Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20 and 21. And I'm going to try and do all of that in 45 minutes or so by way of broad brush introduction and then say to you, your task is to go and sit down with the texts and actually do the details. So uh, I suppose in a sense this is what I do best, giving people an overview of stuff, and then it really depends for its effectiveness on you going and looking up the details. So anyway, so far I have sketched a very big picture historical argument urging that the rise of early Christianity cannot be explained except on the basis which the early Christians themselves insist upon, namely that Jesus of Nazareth after his shameful execution was raised bodily from the dead. But when we come to inquire how the early Christians came to such an unexpected belief, if the belief was in fact incorrect, all the suggestions so far advanced remain remarkably unpersuasive. Indeed, it's interesting, scholars who take a negative view of the resurrection are very fond of saying that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell stories that are actually incompatible with one another. But believe me, if you compare Crossan and Riley and Barbara Thiering and dozens of other scholars, every single one of their theories as to how early Christianity came to be without the resurrection are remarkably incompatible with one another, as well as with serious historiography, far more so than the resurrection narratives themselves. Now, it's important to notice that we've reached this point in the argument without going through most of the hoops that people normally try and go through because I haven't yet discussed the emptiness of the tomb, the rumors of angels, the question of the third day, the burial habits of first century Jews, the charge and countercharge of propaganda leveled this way and that within the early church and the early Jews. Nor do I have time to give those important matters anything more than just a brief mention here. What I want to do instead is to bring into play those key texts in which belief in the bodily resurrection of Jesus attains explicit statement. And to argue that the position at which we have arrived on other grounds, namely the big picture of the historical origins of the church, is indeed supported by the relevant texts. If we'd started with the texts themselves, look at Ludeman and see, you might well get bogged down in hand-to-hand -hand fighting over comparative trivia. Did this detail happen like this, or has this word been put in as a spin by some early Christian before it got to the tradition that then Matthew used, or whatever? But now that we've cleared a historical path through the jungle, it is to be hoped that the texts may become somewhat more approachable. Exegesis is, after all, a branch of history. Never forget that texts belong in contexts. And the first text is Paul, namely 1 Corinthians 15. At this point in the argument, several writers say 
This is all very well, but surely Paul, the first writer to mention the resurrection, refers simply to a spiritual body. Doesn't this mean that for him the resurrection was just a non-bodily event, whatever that might be? And in any case, when we look at Acts, doesn't Paul's seeing of the risen Christ on the road to Damascus form a pretty clear case of what we would call a vision to be explained in terms of Paul's religious experience. No doubt very vivid and important for him personally, but not the sighting of something objective. And shouldn't we suppose, the argument goes on, that actually all the early seeings of the risen Jesus were rather like that, that Paul's was the paradigmatic case. And can't we then explain them all as the projection of a personal spiritual experience onto the fictitious screen of apparent history. And so this, these critics will say, didn't the early church take it for granted that that's what was meant by the resurrection, having that sort of spiritual experience of Jesus? Until, much later, certain gospel traditions were invented which muddied the waters by talk of Jesus cooking breakfast on the shore and eating boiled fish with the disciples in the upper room. Now, we may remind ourselves as the beginning of an answer that Paul had, as I said in Ben's class yesterday, woven resurrection so thoroughly into his thinking and practice that if you take it away, the whole thing unravels in your hands. And you may note further that Paul came from a Pharisaic background in which, as one of the strictest sorts of Pharisees, he believed passionately in the res restoration of Israel, the coming of the new age in which God would restore the fortunes of his people. And Paul, of all people, knew what resurrection meant within the world of first century Judaism. This is the man we're reading when we turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, of course, as well as being our earliest written testimony to the resurrection, purports to contain testimony that goes way back earlier. If 1 Corinthians is written in the early or middle 50s, the quotation at the start of the chapter from the early tradition that Paul says this is what we all preached and this is what you all believed goes way back into the 40s or even earlier. Now, uh, I haven't got time to go verse by verse, as I said. I just want to start with verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul lists the other resurrection appearances, or some of them, to Peter, to James, to the apostles, to 500 all at once. And then he says, last of all, as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. Now that phrase, as to one untimely born, in Greek, hosperito ektromati, like an ektroma. This is a violent image involving something like the idea of a caesarean section, a baby ripped from the womb before it was ready, blinking in terror at the sudden light, scarcely able to breathe in this new world. What is Paul meaning here? Three things, I think. First, there is no doubt something here of autobiography, as Paul remembered the shock of his conversion, blinking at the sudden light on the road to Damascus, blinded indeed by it. But second, Paul indicates clearly enough that what had happened to him was precisely not like what happened to the others. The others saw Jesus. He had this traumatic experience involving his seeing of Jesus. It was different. And thirdly, what is more, Paul only just got in as a witness to the resurrection before the appearances stopped. It was as though the appearances had really stopped and he wasn't ready to be born and he had to be ripped from the womb so that he could just have one in time. He says that his seeing of Jesus happened last of all. And he means that what one might call the ordinary subsequent Christian experience, 
of knowing the risen Jesus within the life of the church, of prayer and faith and the sacraments, was not the same sort of thing that had happened to him. He says the same, much the same in 1 Corinthians 9, 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Christ Jesus my Lord? He hadn't, they hadn't. They'd had every kind of spiritual experience you can think of. They knew and celebrated the presence of the Lord Jesus in their gatherings for worship, but they had not seen the resurrected Jesus in the way that Paul had. Nor was his conversion experience like those of his own subsequent his own subsequent Christian experience, however ecstatic, or that of his converts. Now, in the light of that, the earlier verses of the chapter, verses 1 to 7, contain what Paul describes as the very early tradition common to all Christians, and this tradition includes the burial of Jesus. This is conveniently ignored by Crossan, who suggests darkly in one of his books that Jesus' body was eaten by dogs as it hung on the cross so that there was nothing left to bury. So that whereas Barbara Thiering has a Jesus who was buried but not dead, Crossan has a Jesus who was dead but not buried. Now, in the world of first century Pharisees, as has been said often enough but not often enough heard, to say that someone had been buried and then raised is to say that the tomb was empty. People say, oh, Paul doesn't mention the empty tomb. Therefore, the empty tomb is not important. Therefore, it's likely that he didn't believe in the empty tomb because the body was just spiritual for him. That fails to take account of how Pharisaic Judaism thought of the resurrection. It's, Paul doesn't need to spell this out. It's not yet a matter of debate as to whether the resurrection means empty tomb or not. In his world, to say he was buried and raised, leaving an empty tomb behind him, would be simply tautologous, like it would be for me to say, I walked down the aisle on my feet. Well, of course, only in a world where everyone walked on their hands would you say that. And only in a world where people thought you could be raised without leaving an empty tomb behind you would he mention it, and he doesn't. But perhaps the most important thing about the first paragraph of 1 Corinthians 15 is what Paul and the early church understood the resurrection to mean. Often in Orthodox Christianity today, people have shrunk the meaning of the resurrection and trivialized it. And then sometimes radical scholars think that the bodily resurrection is just a trivial thing. I read a book recently talking about, oh, well, those silly little gospel stories in which you get uh, an Easter morning in a garden and a lovely surprise, you know. God forgive us, sometimes in the church we have preached about Easter as though it was just a nice morning in the garden with a lovely surprise. <laughs> Go to an Eastern Orthodox service and at midnight shouting, Christos Aneste, he is risen indeed, and sense the power of the new creation. That's what we're talking about. It's not a trivial thing at all. You see, for the early church, it wasn't just a new religious experience, nor was it a proof of survival of death. People in our world have been very anxious to find proofs of survival after death, not an issue for Paul. It meant that the scriptures had been fulfilled. It was according to the scriptures. God's new age had broken in, into the midst of the present age. It had dawned upon a surprised and unready world. According to the scriptures does not mean that Paul could find a few little biblical proof texts for this stunning event if he hunted hard enough. It means that the entire biblical narrative had now got where it was going. It had reached its appointed God-ordained goal. Up until then, Israel, including Paul, had been living within an unfinished story, the story in search of an ending. Now the ending had been provided and 
a new beginning thereby made. Paul means, in other words, that the resurrection showed Jesus to be indeed the Messiah, the one to whom all the scriptures pointed, and that meant that in this, the climax of the spiritual, the scriptural narrative, exile had at last been undone. Israel's sins had been done away with. And all of that big theology as history can be deftly summed up in the one clause, the Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's what that means. And when Paul then repeats the phrase, according to the scriptures, a verse later applied to the resurrection, he says this was the beginning of the new age, the great return, the time of blessing which had at last dawned after the darkness of the present evil age. This was the inner meaning which the earliest Christians saw in Jesus' resurrection. And this is then confirmed, jumping forward in the chapter, by verses 20 to 28, where Paul argues on the basis of Jesus' resurrection for a quite new view within Jewish apocalyptic thinking. This is a very Jewish apocalyptic passage, but it's something no previous apocalyptist had ever said. Namely, the resurrection has already occurred in one case and is going to occur in the other cases. The Messiah first, then at the resurrection, those who belong to the Messiah. Now note, in view of what I said yesterday, the Messiah here is not an angel or a spirit or a soul. He is not in an intermediate state, dwelling with God while awaiting a time when he will be raised from the dead. He's already risen. He's already as a bodily human being, exalted to the place where he is ruling the world. There is at last what God always intended, an obedient human being at the helm of the universe. And he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. Psalm 110, Psalm 8, pointing back to Genesis 1 and saying, it's done at last. This is first century Jewish kingdom of God theology reworked around the death and bodily resurrection of the Messiah. And on that basis, Paul can move in verses 29 to 34, a difficult little passage, to assert most emphatically the future embodiedness of the Christian dead and the future transformed embodiedness of the Christian living. The future embodiedness of the Christian dead and the future transformed embodiedness of the Christian living. This, he says, is the only explanation for this funny business of baptism for the dead. I don't know what that's about, and nor does anyone else, I think, but they were doing some stuff there, and he says it only has any sense if there is a future bodiedness which people are going to have. And also the only explanation for the apostolic labors. Why is Paul doing this stuff? Why not just retire somewhere in peace and quiet and make a few tents and earn a decent living, and why go hacking around the world and getting torn to pieces and so on? Only makes sense if for this life only we have hoped in Christ we are of all people most to be pitied. The present life of the church is not about looking after disembodied souls, but about working with and for fully human beings who will be re-embodied at the last after the model of the Messiah. But what sort of a body will it be? Jump to the end of the chapter, to verses 50 to 57, where Paul states clearly and emphatically his belief in a body which is to be changed, not abandoned. The present physicality, in all its transience, its decay, and its subjection to weakness and sickness and death, is not to go on and on forever and ever. Resurrection is not a matter of coming back into an identical sort of body. 
That's what Paul means by saying flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh is one of Paul's technical terms. It is never a neutral term for physicality. It is always a negative term for corruptible physicality and then another layer, sinful physicality. What is required for God's future state of affairs is what we might call a non-corruptible physicality. The dead will be raised, verse 52, incorruptible. And we, that is those who are left alive until the great day, will be changed. Allah, Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. He will change our present humiliation body to be like his glory body. This is not resuscitation back into the same sort of existence exactly. But equally, it is not disembodiment. And if this is what Paul believes about the resurrection of Christians, we may assume, since his argument works in both directions, that this was his view of the resurrection of Jesus as well. And we may take it then that Paul believed that the crucified body of Jesus was changed after his death into the new mode of physicality appropriate for the new age, for the renewal of heaven and earth. How do you talk about a new mode of existence? Only with signposts and metaphors. And that's what Paul gives us in verses 35 to 49. This is the most complex part of the chapter. Scholars debate endlessly the possible backgrounds that the Corinthians may have got some language from the philosophical tradition, either from Philo or Stoicism or whatever, and that Paul may be arguing with that. I have not yet seen a completely convincing explanation of the chapter down those lines, though undoubtedly there is some philosophical stuff out there which they are uh, going with. But in these verses, Paul speaks of the different kinds of physicality between which there exists both continuity and discontinuity. And one of the regular images is of the seed and the plant. You find exactly this image in some of the rabbinic discussions of the resurrection, in uh, the Talmud, Sanhedrin 90 and so on, where there are lengthy discussions, very worthwhile looking up, by the way, in the Talmud 90 A and B, um, the, uh, sorry, Sanhedrin 90 A and B in the Babylonian Talmud. Uh, some fascinating discussions about the rabbis as to how precisely God will make this new body and like, will it rise clothed or naked and interesting stuff like that. You want to go, want to learn about that, go and look. But within this, when he speaks in verses 44 and 46 of the resurrection as a spiritual body, as it's translated in several of the accounts, he does not mean, as has often been supposed and suggested, what we would call a non-physical body. To say that is to pre presuppose a Hellenistic worldview which is totally out of place in this most Jewish of chapters. He is contrasting the present body with the future body. And he calls the present body in Greek a soma psuchikon. And psuchikon comes from the Greek psuche, which means soul, S-O-U-L, not physicality. And the future body is the soma pneumaticon, the spiritual body. Now, because of soul, you might have assumed on a strictly Hellenistic basis that the first body was non-material, a body simply made out of soul. And that's clearly wrong. For several other good reasons, read the commentators, read 
Ben read, Richard Hayes read, several people have written about this passage in 1 Corinthians. It is much better to take this phrase to refer to an actual physical body, on the one hand a body animated by soul, as in Genesis 2, God breathed into human nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That's what Paul quotes in this passage. And on the other hand, an actual physical body animated by God's Spirit. Despite the very influential RSV and NRSV translation, the contrast between soul and spirit in this passage is not a contrast between what we would call physical and what we would call spiritual. And if you want to engage in resurrection apologetic and discussion in the church, sooner or later you're going to have to get your head around all of that stuff. And I recommend you to go to the lexicons, to go to the concordances, to go to commentaries on 1 Corinthians, and really make sure you're on top of that. Because somebody will pop up from the pews or on the street or in an interview and say, but Paul said it was a spiritual body. And I'm afraid you'll have to explain the difference between a Soma Pneumaticon, as Paul meant it, and a Soma Pneumaticon, as the RSV translated it. You better get used to that. Anyway, 1 Corinthians 15 provides, I believe, a remarkably clear and comprehensive statement, considering it was written within 30 years of the crucifixion and contains material a good deal older still. And we are once again, you see, bound to ask, what could have caused such a thoroughly Jewish rethink of thoroughly Jewish traditions? What could have generated, in particular, Paul's clear view of Jesus' resurrection, articulated here in terms of going through death and on beyond into a new sort of existence? What could have caused this view of Jesus' new body as both physical and, in a sense, trans-physical, possessing new properties but remaining definitely and touchably human. We have no reason to suppose that Paul actually possessed any of the gospel material that we now possess. He may well have known those traditions. He may, know, may have known of several others which didn't make it into the canon. But at the same time, Paul's fully developed picture here of Jesus' resurrection shares to a remarkable degree the picture we find in the Gospels. And it is to that picture that I now turn. How can I possibly talk about the resurrection in the Gospel traditions in about 16 minutes? Well, I shall try. I just have certain key observations which I think are a kind of a guiding thread through what can otherwise be perplexing discussions. What we find when we go to the Gospels is that actually Paul's perspective on the resurrection is reaffirmed at every turn. He is not simply dependent on the evangelists and they don't look as if they're dependent on him. Yet what they both have to say dovetails so well, even though the stories they tell are so strange, that as long as we insist on moving from the larger historical picture to the smaller one, instead of getting da bogged down in imponderable details, you know, we will never be quite sure how many women went to the tomb when uh, and in what order with the disciples, or how many angels they may have seen there, and so on and so on. You, know, you can go on arguing about that till the end of the day. We find every reason, nevertheless, for supposing that the basic picture goes back to actual historical memory. Now, there's material that I could throw in here there isn't time for about the hints about resurrection earlier on in the gospel stories. They're worth looking at. Just one point from that, that scholars used to say, and some still say, that Jesus' predictions of his own resurrection are clearly read back onto the lips of Jesus from later on. 
But if you just go and read Second Maccabees, never mind any other martyr literature, you'll find that what martyrs say as they are dying in the cause in that Jewish apocalyptic world is, God will raise me from the dead. That's what people say if that's the sort of people they are. It is quite comprehensible that Jesus, if he believed that it was his vocation in any sense to die as part of his work, that he would believe that God would raise him from the dead. In fact, not to say that is to take Jesus out of his Jewish world. There are seven things I'm going to say, and I just have a short paragraph or so on each of them about the resurrection narratives in the canonical Gospels. And the first of these things... These are just observations which I find helpful as I approach these narratives. The first is that it is remarkable that these stories are told with virtually no embroidery from the Hebrew scriptures. The events the evangelists have related up to this point, Jesus' triumphal entry, his actions in the temple, his teaching on the Mount of Olives, the Last Supper, the arrest, the hearings, the crucifixion, they not only provide a steady narrative crescendo in themselves, but they include a crescendo of biblical citation and allusion. Even the burial narrative has its biblical resonances. And after this, the resurrection narratives convey the naked feeling of a solo flute piping a new melody after the orchestra has fallen silent. And even if we grant with some redaction critics that the evangelists felt so free to develop and expand and theologize and biblicize their sources, why didn't they do so here of all places? The other reason why this lack of embroidery is so remarkable is that as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15.4, from the earliest days of the tradition, the resurrection was seen as having taken place according to the scriptures. How easy it would have been to give one of the angels at the tomb or one of the disciples or Jesus himself or a voice from heaven a biblical passage to speak, which would do for this story what was done for so many others. Not even Matthew tells us all this took place that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. Of course, John comments that those who ran to the tomb didn't yet know the scriptures that he must rise again from the dead, but he never tells us what those scriptures were. Luke, fascinating, tells us that the two on the road to Emmaus had their hearts burning within them while Jesus expounded the scriptures. And then when in the upper room, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. But, and this is my point, these Lucan stories, though themselves consummate works of art, are not works of midrash or exegesis. Again, Crossan, I'm sorry to keep referring to him, but I've read a lot of Crossan and we're in a constant debate. Crossan declares that the passion narratives were invented out of whole cloth on the basis of what he calls prophecy historicized. He cannot say the same with the resurrection narratives. First then, we must note that the lack of biblical embroidery or ornamentation in the resurrection narratives is fascinating. For some reason, these stories are told as though the events just happened. And there are little allusions which can be smoked out cleverly, tiny little septuagintal allusions. Luke, I think, referring very fleetingly to Genesis 3. uh, John referring very fleetingly to Genesis 2. But it's just a, a, a tiny little thing. Second general remark, the stories are very difficult to place on the normal canons of form criticism. Now, true, I have argued elsewhere that those normal canons are themselves in need of some radical revision. But these, this is the point, these very dense and tight stories do not admit of a ready classification on the basis of their form into a use in the community. 
In particular, they do not share the standard Jewish vision story form. Okay, people, they're, they're, the people are frightened and they're told, don't be afraid, that's a very standard motif, but then they would say that, wouldn't you? But supposing, and this is the point, supposing these stories were fictions projected back out of a desire to claim that the scripture had been fulfilled, they would look much more like standard Jewish vision stories than in fact they do. The third remark follows closely from this, and that is that the portrait of Jesus in these stories is quite extraordinary. On the one hand, Jesus is never depicted as a heavenly being, radiant or luminous with glory. Isn't that odd? Even the brilliant light of the transfiguration is absent. The sightings of and meetings with Jesus are quite unlike the sort of heavenly visions of a figure in dazzling glory or wreathed in clouds that one might expect in the Jewish apocalyptic or Merkava traditions. They're quite unlike what you find in Revelation chapter 1. They are not attempting to describe the sort of thing you expect if what they wanted to say was simply that Jesus had been exalted to a position of heavenly glory. What is the key text in Judaism in this period for resurrection? It's Daniel 12. What does Daniel 12 say about the risen ones? They will shine like stars. Why don't the resurrection narratives have Jesus shining like a star? If people were making up resurrection narratives out of their Jewish background, that's what they should have said. On the other hand, Jesus is almost routinely depicted as having a human body with properties that are, to say the least, unusual. It is often asserted that Luke and John were writing towards the end of the first century and were eager, like Ignatius and other writers just around that time, to disprove docetism, the idea that Jesus only seemed to be human but wasn't really, by insisting fictitiously on the ordinary human embodiedness of Jesus, that he could eat and drink and be touched and so on. But the same text that tells us that Jesus ate broiled fish, Luke 24, also tells us that he appeared and disappeared through locked doors. And that at one of those appearings, close friends didn't recognize him. And that at the end, he was taken up into heaven. If Luke is trying to tell us that Jesus had an ordinary human body, he's done a pretty poor job of it. Somehow we have to get our minds around the fact that in the canonical Gospels, look, this is the point, in the canonical Gospels, the picture of Jesus is of one who is embodied as a human being, but whose body has in some way been transformed. It now has a new set of properties. What conclusion can we draw from this? I think we either have to say, as careful historical readers of these texts, that Matthew, Luke, and John, we'll come to Mark in a minute, have acquired from Paul, or somebody like him, a theology of resurrected humanity in which the body is neither resuscitated nor abandoned, but transformed. And we have to say then that they have quite independently invented stories which interestingly demonstrate this phenomenon, but from which every trace of Pauline theology, including scriptural exegesis, has been removed. That's one theory you could adopt for how these stories came to be. Or you have to say that they, like Paul, are aware that this new model of humanness has appeared in their midst, and that whereas he places the phenomenon in its full Jewish apocalyptic context with scriptural technicolor, they tell stories with the puzzled air of someone saying, I didn't understand it at the time, and I'm still not sure I do, but this is more or less what happened. Now, I find that latter option 
of telling how this stuff happened. Far more preferable and probable. The Gospels, I think, are describing almost artlessly. Okay, there is lots of artistry, but it, it has this breathless quality to it. That for which Paul then provides the underlying theological and exegetical framework. But they are not dependent on Paul. The probability must be, I believe, that whenever the Gospels reached their final form, they continued to preserve very, very early oral Gospel tradition. That is the conclusion I reach from that third point. The fourth point, swiftly, is a general redaction critical comment. It's increasingly been recognized that the evangelists were careful by and large to describe Jesus as they supposed he was in his own day, not as if he was a member of their own church. And the same is true here. Luke did not suppose that his readers might still meet Jesus in this way on the road to Emmaus, although he has told the story in such a way as to say that the exposition of Scripture and the breaking of the bread is a mode, a continuing mode of meeting Jesus. John did not suppose that people might still happen upon Jesus cooking breakfast by the shore. Matthew's Jesus will be with his people always, but is not continually to be met on a mountain in Galilee. If someone were to say to the evangelists now, of course, the way you've told the story means that it functions as a kind of a parable of what happens spiritually in the church, the evangelists would say, yes, that is true. But if you start by supposing that the stories were in some sense or other based on actual reminiscence, then you can see how they could come to be used in that extended sense. But if you try to imagine the spiritual experience of the church then being written up as resurrection stories, you'll find it's impossible. The surprising elements which I just noted rule it out. These are not the sort of stories that people in that situation would have told. That is a literary and historical judgment. It could be challenged, but that's the view I take. The fifth general point is this. I find it totally incredible then to suppose, as most New Testament scholars in the last generation have done, that Luke and John in their resurrection accounts are a late development in the tradition solely. The idea, in any case, that traditions developed in the church from a more Hellenistic, spiritual, in that sense, early view to a more Jewish and physical later one is just counterintuitive. The church starts out Jewish and develops into a thing out there in the Hellenistic world, not the other way around. If there was development, then the model we find in Josephus, to look no further, suggests that a Hellenistic spiritualizing of the tradition is much more likely. I suggest, therefore, that whenever Luke and John reach their final form, the traditions now embodied in their closing chapters go back to genuine early memories, told and retold and no doubt shaped and reshaped within the very, very early church, but with their basic message, which makes sense within the world of apocalyptic Judaism, remaining intact. Sixth, a word about that old puzzle, the ending of Mark. I'm a heretic on this one. I think there is or was a longer ending which is now lost. Mark, after all, has introduced us in his gospel to Jairus' daughter. He's told us that Herod thinks Jesus is John the Baptist, raised from the dead. He's conveyed to us the puzzlement of the disciples in Mark 9, when Jesus speaks of the rising of the dead. What is more, he's told us three times that Jesus warned his followers of his coming death and told them that he would be raised from the dead. And finally, he's emphasized that Jesus told the disciples on the Mount of Olives and Caiaphas in the Jewish hearing that the Son of Man will be vindicated, exalted on the clouds to a position of glory. Mark's structure is a lot more sophisticated than his grammar. 
He has so ordered his gospel that the warnings about suffering reach a crescendo to his crucifixion narrative. What about the promises of resurrection and vindication? I cannot believe that Mark, as it has been so popular to say in the last generation, was really a postmodernist who would leave his gospel simply with a dark and puzzling ending designed to make us all think, ooh, isn't life dark and puzzling? You know, a lot of critics have kind of wallowed in that. This is the original vision that life is dark and puzzling, and you know, somewhere maybe Jesus is there, but who knows? And that's what a lot of people have wanted to say for quite other reasons, and they've subpoenaed Mark as evidence. Now, grammatically, the gospel could have ended with gar, ephobunto gar, they were afraid, for they were afraid. Structurally, I do not think the gospel could have ended without the story of the risen, vindicated Jesus. I believe that Mark's scroll, like so many scrolls in the ancient world, lost its ending and quite possibly its beginning too at a very early age. Go to the Israel Museum in Jerusalem and look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. How many of them have got their beginning column and their ending column? Very few. Those are the bits that fall off with use. What the ending contained, I don't know. But I'm sure it told stories not unlike those in Matthew, Luke, and Mark, Luke and John, though no doubt in Mark's own way, stories about a risen Jesus appearing and disappearing, teaching and commissioning, and finally being seen in that way no more. After all, if so many others have the right to invent new early Christian texts, why shouldn't I do so too just this once? Seventh, if I have understood aright the strange and unprecedented story that the Gospels and Paul tell in their different ways, then we arrive not only at the problem of what we call the ascension, but also at at least the elements of its solution. This is very difficult stuff. The continuity between the body of Jesus on the cross and the body with which he rose means that we have a problem. When I debate with Marcus Borg about the resurrection, he will say, almost as though it's a QED put down, he will say, Well, you know, if the body of Jesus was really physical, where is it now? And if I say, Well, you know, Luke does have a story which explains where it is now, he say, But you don't actually believe that, do you? The continuity between the body of Jesus on the cross and the body with which he rose means we have a problem. The transformation of the body, producing both the peculiar stories in the Gospels and Paul's theology of going through death and out the other side into a new country beyond, a strange, unmapped new land, hints at the answer. We would be wrong to assume, you see, that the language of heaven and earth and of clouds veiling the passage between the two was heard with a naive literalism in the first century. People who use three-decker language by no means necessarily think in three-decker cosmological terms. Any more than we who say that the sun rises in the east are committed to pre-Copernican astronomy. I was once at a theological conference in Germany, and we were taken to the opera by our uh, theological hosts, and the opera had an extraordinary coup de théâtre because after a certain point, um, the, the stage moved. It was, it was like a, a, one of those elevators that would go up and down so that you realized that the action was taking place here and there was an upstairs which could come into view and there was a, a lower floor which could come into view and the whole action shifted up and down like this. And my, my host, Gerhard Sauter in Bonn, nudged me and said, this is Bultmann's three-decker cosmology. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, they, they didn't take that language literally. Often enough in the Bible, heaven is simply God's space, which is interrelated with our space in ways that are often, usually in fact, opaque. Stories about Jesus being exalted to God's right hand, to within God's space, to heaven in other words, are stories designed to safeguard the bodily resurrection on the one hand and the transformed nature of that body on the other. We don't find it easy to come to terms with that latter reality. The problem doesn't start with the ascension narratives. It is there as soon as you distinguish resurrection from either resuscitation or disembodiment. If you thought it was easy to talk about the new embodiment of Jesus, that would only go to show that you'd forgotten what we were talking about. So what the Easter, seriously, what the Easter stories propel us towards, in fact, is a new ontology and a new epistemology. The recognition, in other words, that God's single, though double-sided world, golly, that's a difficult thing to say, that God's single, though double-sided world, which we call heaven and earth, is not a divided world, but an interlocking one. And that, just as in Judaism, the temple was quite literally supposed to be the place where, above all, heaven and earth interlocked. So now Jesus is that primary place. That's the ontology and the epistemology. The resurrection compels us to hold in our minds the possibility that there is a form of knowing which embraces heaven and earth together and which is appropriate within God's new world. A form of knowing, in other words, in which what we call history and what we call theology or even spirituality meet and merge to form something new for which we, unfortunately, don't have good language. This is the point at which, though I will insist, I think, till my dying day, that the historian canon must study the resurrection of Jesus. It isn't, as we are often told, beyond history so that the historian just has to stand back and veil his face. Nevertheless, that event itself points beyond what most people in our world mean by history, not to leave history behind, but to include it, to swallow it up within a larger reality. In other words, to do for our whole cosmology what Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 5, that what is mortal, history included, may be swallowed up, transformed in life. Now, what can we conclude from these seven points about the Easter stories? Of course, when stories are told once and once only in any historical source, Josephus, Tacitus, whoever, proof, test tube proof, is impossible. But that's not what history is like. We've seen that it is impossible to explain the origin of Christianity without reference to something like this happening at Easter. We've seen that Paul presupposes something like this. We've seen that these stories themselves, though exceedingly odd, don't reduce the oddness of those stories. That comes with the turf. They show none of the telltale signs of later writing up or fiction that we might have supposed if they were second or third generation pseudo-history. It's often pointed out that the stories exhibit a lot of that confusion and surface inconsistency which we associate with the eyewitness testimonies of those who've seen something remarkable and disturbing and not easily comprehensible. 
I wish to suggest that all the evidence points to the fact that something very like what the evangelists describe must indeed have taken place, and that however much they themselves have shaped their stories and pointed them up this way and that, their basic testimony to the strange bodily resurrection of Jesus must be accepted. There is much more I could say. Let me just get cut straight to my final conclusion. I propose that when faced with the historical problem of the resurrection, the only way forward is to grasp the nettle and to recognize that history itself drives us to the borders of language, philosophy, theology, and of history itself, and to point out as best we can that the only explanation that fits all the available evidence is that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed bodily raised on Easter morning. This and only this enables us to answer the initial question that I asked 25 hours ago, why Christianity arose and why it took the shape it did. Of course, if you grasp this nettle, does raise, as I've just said, huge questions of worldview and epistemology. But if at this moment of history, at the cusp of the 21st century, when the Western world faces the crisis of postmodernity, the church can't articulate its worldview freshly and clearly, but instead retreats into the barren denials of modernity, we are indeed of all people the most to be pitied. But if, on the other hand, the church were to return to the historical roots which it's so often been taught to fear and avoid, including by some conservative Christians, oh, don't get into historical study. You'll lose your faith that way. No, if we return to those historical roots, we might find there not just answers to questions the world is asking, but questions to ask in our own right, agendas to pursue. If the historical study of Jesus and the resurrection is to be more than a mere exercise in ancient history, albeit a fascinating one, it's perhaps at this point that we can see how it points beyond itself. As far as this historian is concerned, as you will not be surprised, the line which begins with the historical Jesus and the historical resurrection moves forward into the historical present, offering as much of a challenge to the world of late 20th century postmodernity as it did to the world of Second Temple Judaism and the early Roman Empire. But that is another story for another occasion. As the Orthodox say at Easter, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah.